Good afternoon. You're on the panel. RNZ National, Wallace Chapman here. I'm with Julia Hartley-Moore and David Cormack. Uh, your responses regarding vaccination, they're coming through thick and fast. Uh, Jan in Titahi Bay, Potadua, says, fantastic vaccination team, Cannons Creek, Potadua. Figured if I can endure a smear test, this will be fine. And it was. Uh, Jackie says, um, I had my first vaccination in Birkenhead. It was very efficient and all the staff were very kind and helpful. It's a very impressive setup. Shelley says, Rehua Marai for uh, my, uh, my uh, uh, vaccination. Stunning service, so grateful. And on a side note, Edmunds baking powder used to come in a box and easily opened closed paper. Was great. Now it's in an unclosable sealed plastic bag. What was wrong with the original pack? Oh, well, you see, this is it. I remember the old um, box because I used to bake lots of cakes, and I've stopped doing that now too. Um, and yeah, it was those things were so easy to get to, and you could just squash them up and put them in the easy, recycle. eh? Yeah. yeah. First up, though, Wellington will move back down to alert level one from midnight tonight, and cabinet has agreed in principle to resume travel with some Australian states from Sunday. There are no cases of COVID-19 to report in the community in New Zealand today. Also, as you'll have heard, the government is considering a mandatory mask wearing at alert level 2 and higher, as well as a mandatory QR code scanning in high-risk areas like pubs and restaurants. Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has said the rise of the Delta variant and the risk it poses to the trans-Tasman bubble means it's timely to consider new measures of the toolbox. So is this realistic or does it just add more pressure for the likes of, say, hospitality workers? Professor Michael Plank from Canterbury University School of Mathematics and Statistics and a principal investigator at Te Punaha Matatini joins us on the line. Professor Plank, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. Yeah, firstly, Wellington will move back to alert level one from midnight tonight. Appropriate move or should have been extended a bit more? Yeah, look, I mean, I think the um, <clears throat> the risk is pretty low now. Um, it's uh, encouraging that it's close to 2% of Wellington's population has been tested. Now we continue to get these negative results from wastewater testing. Um, so, you know, altogether pretty low risk, but it's not no risk. We know yeah. that, that some people can incubate the virus for up to 14 days. So really this move puts the responsibility back onto all of us um, to, to, you know, if, if, if anyone does develop symptoms to make sure they come forward for testing. Yeah, as Mr. Minister Hipkins said, wastewater results continue to show no detection of COVID-19 in any of the sites around uh, Wellington, Hutt Valley, Porterua. So if there were community cases in New Zealand, evidence of them could be expected to have been seen by now? Uh, more than likely, yeah. Uh, and also the fact that um, it's around 950 contacts of the um, the Sydney tourist are in isolation and have been in the isolation over what would have been their infectious period is encouraging. So, you know, all of these things contribute to, to the fact that, that the risk is low. Um, but, you know, with COVID, it's, it's never zero. So we just have to stay on alert. Jumping over to the QR code scanning in high risk areas, uh, consideration of it making it mandatory. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, certainly anything that increases use of the app um, will be a good thing because we know that the usage has dropped off a lot. 
um, and and the and the use levels um, prior to this latest um, you know outbreak or alert, sorry, I should say, um, were really too low um, to to give confidence that we would be able to track um, contacts down quickly enough um, and and use that um, contact tracing system to effectively contain an outbreak. Mm, we've got a panel with us, of course, Michael. Julia, what do you I th- think? No, I think it's a good idea. I think yeah. it should. Well, look, because you just can't. You can't say it's not going to, nothing's going to happen. I mean, it's kind of like we're very, very lucky at the moment, but I think you've, it, complacency is the worst thing, so we need to all be onto it. Complacency the worst thing, Professor Plank? Uh, yeah, uh, agreed. Um, yeah, and I mean, I can understand why the government's sort of moved cautiously on this, um, because there are issues and questions about enforcement, who's responsible for the enforcement, and also the issue with um, Apple and Google, um, you know, not being happy that, uh, that their software is being used on a, on a mandatory app. So there are some issues to work through with the tech providers there as well. So there are a few details that need to be worked through, but, uh, you know, if it increases usage, um, then it's a good thing. David, call me. I just don't know how you'd enforce it, to be honest. Like, are we going to have, is it incumbent upon, say, a hospo place to have someone mm. on the door the entire time watching you? And what about those people that don't have smartphones? They then have to leave their name and details, which is kind of a privacy invasion. Like, I, I, it's a good idea in theory, but I don't know how it would work in practice. It's communism. Michael? I suppose uh, the enforcement, just jumping in here, because that's, that, that's I guess, where, where it lies. Eh? Who, who would enforce it? Is, it? is it is it the responsibility of the person scanning in, or there is, is it the responsibility of the person who owns that store? Yeah, I mean, the, and these are the questions that, that need to be worked through. I mean, it may be that just the fact of making it mandatory will send a signal to people and give them the jolt that they need to actually mm. um, use the app a bit more. Um, a lot of places, you know, it is feasible for them to have someone on the entrance just, you know, standing there and encouraging people to check in. And, you know, the compliance with this is never going to be 100 um, percent. But if we can increase it and get it moving in the right direction, that's got to be a good thing. I just want to bring up the uh, maybe it comes back to human nature, but can I bring this up? Just 20 percent or so of the 2,600 people potentially exposed to this virus used the tracer app when an affected Sydney traveller visited the capital while fewer than 10% of Kiwis use it regularly. Do those figures surprise you? Um, they don't particularly surprise me, but they, um, they're certainly too low. Um, I mean, we, we know that contact tracing, it's one of the, you know, it's one of the main tools we have in, in effectively fighting the virus. It, it can reduce transmission by sort of 30 to 45 percent that's Gosh. what we saw last august and to put that in context that's about half of what you'd get from having an alert level three lockdown wow. so it really is a, a really useful tool but it relies on being able to find contacts quickly and to find all of them and to to, to have confidence that we can do that we need more people using the app what do you see in Wellington, David? Do you see when you when you go into a cafe or something like you scan in or a museum and art gallery? Do you notice others doing it or not? No. So I I am I, I scan quite a lot. I'm pleased to hear I'm part of the ten percent. But I've noticed that if I go into say a supermarket and I go and scan, I would have assumed that seeing one person scan like that might put peer pressure on the others who are coming in behind me to scan. But people don't give a crap. They just bowl on past and they Mm. just do their shopping without scanning in. And so, you know, just pretend there's COVID out in the wilderness every now and again and it shows that our scanning rates shoot up. Mm. 
Yeah. Hey, just as final thought, uh, Professor Plank, uh, what are your thoughts on mandatory mask wearing? Can we address this? Is this another step? There have been some that have said that we are you know, lagging behind other countries on this that have kind of normalised this behaviour. Where, 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 where do you lie? Yeah, I think when we're at alert level two and above, um, extending that mask mandate makes sense. Um, and that's probably something that's a bit easier to enforce, really, than the um, the QR code scanning, because it's very, very obvious whether someone's wearing a mask or not. Right. Um, and so that's, you know, it's it's perhaps something that's more visible. Mm. Professor Michael Blank, kia ora. Uh, nice to have you on again. Thank you. Uh, and your thoughts on that. But so you think it's uh, you think it's a good thing. And, and oh, what about you, Julia? Have you been uh, yeah, compliant? Yes, you? I was waiting for you to ask me that. Well, yeah, no, I have. And it's interesting because Steve catches the ferry into work every day and back again. Yeah. So you know he has to wear the mask on the ferry, and we're actually going to the Lion King um, weekend, and I'm going to wear a mask because I just think, you know, there's going to be lots of people there. Will it I be think. a Simba mask? Well, I've been a paint. I have got a leopard pr- little pl- little liony kind of print mask. Um, no, it won't be. Of course it won't be. But look, it's the third time I've seen it. Ask yourself, what's wrong with me? Yeah. Hey, someone says, what about you, Wallace? Do you always scan? Says yeah, Catherine and Christ. Well, I am a very uh, poor scanner. Ha- ha- happy to say that, uh, and this sounds pretty virtuous, doesn't it? But I have for months scanned every Good. single place I go. I'm actually just surprised I'm... you even own a smartphone, to be yeah, honest, do you, Wallace. Do you, you reckon? Well, I can yeah? see it. It's pretty old, though, I've got to say. I mean... Crikey, I traded my one in like that. David, um, just, because, just because I faxed you the details of today's show, <laughs> don't think that I don't have a smartphone, OK? Um, but, yes, no, I, uh, I, I have been assiduous every single place Good. I go, and it's just become... Well, it's just habit, kind of habit, and, yeah. and that's right. And mm. once it does, that's the main thing. It's All right, 17 past for the panel, uh, NZ National, loving your company this afternoon. Uh, you can get in touch, 2101, or you can email uh, the panel at rnz.co.nz. To this, Otago University and United Kingdom researchers have developed the world first device which uses magnets to lock the mouth almost shut. It's a weight loss device called Dental Slim Diet Control. The wearer can open their mouths only about two millimetres, restricting them to a liquid diet. It is fitted by a dentist. The team was headed up by the University of Otago Health Sciences Pro Vice-Chancellor, Professor Paul Brunton. The paper was published in the British Dental Journal. It has been universally slammed on Twitter, getting thousands of responses, thousands of retweets, many saying it was like something out of The Handmaid's Tale. Won't work long-term and does nothing to address underlying obesity issues. Although one on Facebook did say, personally, if I needed help at the extreme end, I'd opt for this temporary measure over a gastric bypass, which is a more permanent procedure. So to discuss is journalist and commentator Anna Rafiti Connell, who wrote an opinion piece in the spin-off about this very device. Anna, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. Nice to have you on the programme. So, dental slim diet control. Huge response. This device has gone around the world. Were you surprised at this massive online response, by the way? Um, I wasn't because I think there's quite a high level of consciousness about issues around obesity now. And I think people's initial response was that it was a pretty bad example of kind of fat shaming and that it's sort of indicating that, you know, willpower and restriction are the the ways to lose weight when there's now 
overwhelming evidence to suggest that that's actually not the case. So I wasn't surprised to see the backlash. Mm. Um, But it did make me think about what the possible use case could be, and I guess that's what I've written about for the spin-off. Yeah, and in the spin-off, you wrote a, you wrote a, um, you, you wrote this, um, this great, great item, and you yourself in the uh, in the article, you said you've had bariatric surgery, so you are familiar with these issues. Yeah, I had bariatric surgery um, in February 2020 after years of trying to lose weight in basically any way um, that you are told to, except actually wiring my jaw shut. Um, and the reality is, is that, you know, anyone you talk to who's got expertise in this area will tell you that it's pretty impossible to shift a decent amount of weight and keep it off. Um, your body sort of has a bit of a weight anchor that it likes to kind of hang around in. Um, and I, I had type 2 diabetes and I was staring down the barrel of some pretty serious long-term health consequences. So I made the decision to have bariatric surgery. And I guess the, the thing with it and the reason I wrote the piece that I did is that there's a lot of misconception about that surgery and that it's a quick fix or it's a cheats way out. But but the whole point is that it gives you a bit of a reset to, you know, have some success in, in weight loss, which is often one of the, you know, really demoralizing things about trying to lose weight is that it you put it all back on again. Um, and you know, the idea is, is that you get your head around some of the stuff about why you might be eating the way you're eating and you start to understand the kind of the world that we live in, which which does make it incredibly difficult to, to make good choices um, for your body. So I think, you know, my issue with this door magnet clamping situation is is kind of twofold. One is that it reinforces the really unhealthy idea that you know, fat people just don't have any willpower and that all they need to do is eat less. And the second one is, is that even in an edge case scenario, which is the one I sort of talked about in terms of being on a liquid diet pre-bariatric surgery, it doesn't help you get your head around what really needs to change for you. It's very short term. The study only had seven participants, all of whom were white women. And so I really question, I guess, the validity of the claims. All right, let's go to our panel, see what they think about it. Hey, Julia, first, have you seen the picture oh, of the I, image? Look, I've seen, and you're right, Handmaid's Tale. It's what it reminds me of. I just, it just, I looked at that and I thought, oh my God, it's like unbelievable. But um, look, I know what you're saying because I'm slim, as Wallace can testify to that. But I, you know, I had bulimia when I was a kid and, um, or a teenager. And, I had that for years, and it was all about this this restriction, how you were told you can't eat that, you can't have that, you can't do this. And to get your head around learning that you can in moderation took bloody years. Now I'm there, right? I got there at about 40, but it took me about 20 years to get there. So I can, um, and everyone just goes on to me, oh, you're so lucky, you're so slim. Well, no, I'm not really. It's just taken a hell of a long time. And... um, and it's hard. But they, this this thing, to me, looks... I mean, it's only a short-term thing, though, isn't it? It's actually meant to be before surgery, isn't it, to help... Anna? Yeah, that's, that's the idea. That's the sort of I, the case that they've floated. They trialled it on seven people for two weeks, and they all lost, sort of, on an average, 6.3 kilos. But you will in two weeks anyway, won't you? Well, you I mean, will, on a liquid diet. I mean, I lost yeah. 10 and 3, you know, yeah. on a pre-surgery liquid diet. But I guess my point is that 
the idea that sort of restricting yourself or literally, you know, getting your jaw wide shut to stop you from that kind of temptation, it doesn't help you start the kind it's of It's in thinking. your head. It's in yeah, your head. It doesn't, it, it's a very um, kind of old school idea about what, what we need to do to make sure, you know, we feel good yeah. enough in our bodies. David? Yeah, I thought it looked like something from Saw. Um, and I'm I'm possibly part of the target market for, for that contraption, and I have little to no interest in, in forcing my jaw shut like that because, I mean, aside from eating, I also talk a lot, and I don't know what the impacts are on that. Well, how and do you yawn? How like, do you sneeze? The whole thing is a communications disaster. It's a science disaster. It's just mm. it's a train wreck. Um, and Anna, I thought your piece was fantastic, and 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 thank you so much for writing it. Because um, yeah, it does. It reinforces some really terrible tropes um, about fat people. Uh, and basically, go to hell, Otago. Right. Just uh, by the way, uh, I just got to jump in with this news flash here. Wellington has declared a state of emergency for a suburb on the south coast ahead of a high tide this evening. So we be be keeping abreast of that information. Wellington has declared a state of emergency. Is Caitlin for a suburb okay on the south coast? Uh, I will, uh, Caitlin, text us uh, if you're listening to this to make sure. But we all keep in touch with Caitlin. But Anna, for those uh, for those who might be thinking, well, what's the solution? I mean, it's going to be used for patients who can't have a general anaesthetic due to their weight in preparation for orthopaedic surgery, Professor Brunton said. What of these people, what solution would you suggest? I would suggest, you know, working with a, a dietitian. I mean, quite often in those pre-surgery phases, whether it's bariatric or other surgery, um, you know, there is wraparound care that's available to you. And I would suggest working with a dietitian and possibly a counsellor or a psychologist or someone to, to, to talk through some of the issues about, you know, why your weight is where it where it's at, and and a liquid diet can be a good short term kickstart, jumpstart. But I don't think you need to have your jaw wide. No, because no. the minute you stop, the minute. Yeah, but if we're, if we're looking at various interventions, I mean, we have bariatric surgery, and I was reading the discussion document, the cost of the device and the clinical time to fit and remove the device is 20 minutes, much lower, and they say safer than the main alternative of bariatric surgery. Thus, it's suggested that it could be just another choice. You don't have to have it or actually any of it. Yeah, I guess this, the sort of alignment with it being an alternative to bariatric surgery is probably one of the most specious claims in, in what they've said because bariatric surgery is a long-term um, kind of solution and, and, and weight management um, plan, really. I mean, it, it is for, for life, but you, you have to keep on working at it. You, lots of people lose weight and then put it back on after that surgery. This is designed... There's no way anyone should be wearing that thing for, for no. longer than the two weeks or the six weeks or whatever. So it's not a long-term solution. And the reality is that if you do a liquid diet and you've got your jaw magnets in, you're going to put all that weight back on straight away because, you know, it's so well established now that the only way through... You know, losing weight in the long term is by making really long term mm, big lifestyle absolutely. changes. And absolutely. bariatric surgery is a, is a really good kickstart for that because you do have a physical restriction. But but the key piece, you talk to anybody who's involved in that field, the key piece is about getting your head around it. And so, mm. you know, the jaw thing is not going to solve any of the long term problems. Well, she's dead right. <laughs>
All right. Uh, lovely to have you on the programme. Anna Rafiti Connell, uh, thank you for that. Uh, journalist and commentator who wrote an opinion piece in the spin-off about this uh, this device. Uh, you can check it out online. It's quite an extraordinary-looking uh, thing, the Dental Slim Diet Control. 27 past four, the panel now to this. A Dunedin teenager literally stopped traffic after stopping motorists from entering a car park unless they were in EVs or hybrid vehicles. As Stuff reports, the activists felt threatened after a driver yelled at them and police have since given the teen advice about more appropriate ways to conduct. So is this lone protester the next Greta Thunberg or an <laughs> idealistic teenager causing an unnecessary headache for motorists? David Cormack, what do you think? Well, again, it goes back to individualisation point. That said, big fan of direct action. So I am definitely on the protesters' side 100%. Causing mayhem, love upset, it. Uh, causing mayhem, uh, 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 holding up cars, stopping traffic, and you support it. Yeah, absolutely. I support all of those things. Causing mayhem, <laughs> stopping, stopping traffic, and upsetting cars. Hundred percent. Julia, I, I, well, I, I, I don't know how the the better way to go about it would have been, but I would have tried to have thought of a better way to have, have gone about it, that rather than to anger people too much. I mean, look, I drive a a big car. In fact, it's so big I can't park it in the car park down here. Do you know that? And um, well, and one day, well, I, well, that's disgraceful, isn't it? It is disgraceful. That's, that's a disgrace. I am known for a big car, and I know I'm a disgrace, and I absolutely love. And you're, you're not even apologetic. I'm not apologetic about it. You can say uh, sorry to the nation now. I am. Listen, I'm a vegetarian. I'm doing my bit. But one day, one day, I will trade in my great big car, and I will get another great big car. But it'll be electric. But it'll still be a great big car. But the, so these kids, right, they have done the school strike for climate and they have marched and they have protested and they have seen inaction, right? The government has paid lip service, not just in New Zealand but all around the world. So I am totally for them taking matters into their own hands just so that something actually gets done. Hmm. Julia? Fair enough. Okay. Yep. I'd just try and do it a different way. I don't know what that is, though. No, no. But maybe, maybe uh, one way, what, what you could do is uh, swapping your big vehicle for... A horse? I could. I'd probably an, take an, the same an, an amount e of time. An e-bike. Yeah, oh, horses have got methane emission problems. Yeah, I was just I was thinking that. No, well, I, I don't want an e-bike. I've got a bike. But I might have to set out the day before to get here on time, Wallace, that's all. Uh, when I was a child in the 70s, a family friend's son had his mouth wired shut. He was nine years old. He would sneak potato chips up the little gap. Imagine if he choked. Yes, he lost the weight, but ended up being a very obese adult who has now passed away, sadly, before his 40s. Mm. Uh, and that was Sad. one thing that, that perhaps wasn't mentioned. That there was comparisons to the jaws being wired shut, and that was a procedure, I think, in the late 70s and 80s. Yeah. You used to have uh, your jaw wired shut, and I'm sure that the listeners might add to that if you've had that experience. Anyway, 2101 is the number to get us on. Text, uh, rather.